0: Snuff production. Hi, I'm Akim Dev, host of Disclosed, The Children in the Pictures. Thank you for listening to the series and to those of you who have reached out to us. It's been encouraging to hear about the changes many parents have implemented since listening to ensure our children stay safe on the internet. Many of you have also commented on the heroic investigations of Task Force Argos and the agents who do this work day in and day out. Today, we're releasing a bonus episode so you can learn more about the man behind Argos, John Rouse. John has recently retired after a decorated career in policing. He headed up Task Force Argos and spent 26 years in child protection. After following John for years during the making of the children in the pictures, I'm now lucky enough to call him a friend and collaborator in the fight against child sexual abuse. John recently gave an exclusive interview to another listener podcast called Crime Insiders, hosted by former sexual assault investigator Brent Sanders. In this episode, we learn about how John started in this field, the innovative methods he developed, and the advice he gives to people working in child protection to help avoid burnout. Here's Brent Sanders speaking with John Rouse. And just a warning, they discuss cases of sexual abuse against children, Listener discretion is advised.
1: Former Detective Inspector John Rouse has been through the worst of the worst. As the head of Task Force Argos, a team of dedicated people working to rescue our most vulnerable children from predators, John's devotion to preventing child exploitation has sent him through the dark web and he has come out the other side. In the award-winning podcast, The Children in the Pictures, you can hear the links that Task Force Argos went to, to save the children from sexual exploitation. But does being deep in the trenches of child abuse material take its toll? And how does one find themselves at the head of such a huge task force? G'day John, thanks so much for joining us. I spoke to you briefly just off air there for a little while and you you strike me as a very sort of a humble, modest bloke. And so it's probably going to go against the grain, John, for me to introduce you the way I'd planned, which is I would say you would be one of the most decorated police officer in the country, certainly in Queensland. I mean, I, I read through here, John, the list of some of your awards. Goodness me. Queensland Strangler of the Year. 2019, Queensland Police Medal, National Service Medal, Exemplary Conduct Medal, National Police Medal, and Australian Police Medal. I tell you, if they're all down in the pool room, mate, that's a very impressive selection, John. Well done.
2: Uh, thanks, yeah. you you'll, you can't see around my office here, but there's nothing hanging on the walls and they're all, <laughs> everything's, everything's in boxes in the cupboard.
1: I guess sitting here as you are at the end of your career, um, I have a picture in my mind of you as a young green recruits that are, I'm thinking, what, mid-80s uh, Queensland They're going into the academy? Just give us a bit of an intro of how it all started, John.
2: So yeah, in terms of joining the Queensland Police, I started in 1984 as a probationary and six months was the, the training period in those days and then I got sworn in after that and they moved you around a few initial stations just to wet your feet. I went to Brisbane Mobile Patrols, I went to a local station called Ashgrove Police Station, which doesn't exist anymore, it got burnt down, and City Station, where I walked the beat for a while right. in the old polyester pants that were not designed for the climate of Queensland <laughs> and chafed horrendously.
1: Back in the day, John, you know, you talk to coppers now, it's probably a little bit different, but back, you know, I joined the Job 84 myself and... uh Goodness me, if, you, if you're sent to a decent-sized station, you didn't get in a patrol car for the first year or two. You're just out on the beat. You're walking
2: around. Definitely at City Station that was the case. We were You were clocking you know, mm. 10, 12, 15 kilometres walking a night. If you're lucky, you got in the drunks van, Bravo 300, but seldom did you get in an actual patrol car. When I went to mobile patrols, I was full-time in a patrol car which is great. I loved it.
1: And so you do your sort of your couple of years probationary and then you can sort of branch out into a few different areas, John. At what, at what point did you sort of start going down the path of working sex crimes or child protection? How, how did that occur?
2: So I did uh, I did my initial tour and then I was posted full-time at City Station. I did about 18 months in the Brisbane City Watch House, which taught me a hell of a lot about life that I would probably rather forget. Uh, mm. And then from there I went to mobile patrols permanent partner with a great mate of mine who's still a great mate of mine. He lives up here on the Sunshine Coast with me now. So after about 18 months, two years, he and I decided that we wanted to join the branch, the Criminal Investigation Branch, or CIB. Uh, so we both headed down the pathway of becoming detectives, which is a three-year process. Yep. I, I started at Taringa Criminal Investigation Branch and did some time there. Then I went to the GAP. And while I was at the GAP, I started applying for promotion to Detective Sergeant, and I was successful in being promoted into State Crime Command. And at that point in your career, you weren't really given much of a choice about specialisation. And I remember, I still remember the phone call where they they rang me and said, congratulations, you've been promoted and you're going to child abuse. And I was like, whoa, okay, because at, at that point in time, I had like a, I had a baby. Like my my daughter was really young and it it had the effect that I suppose you'd expect it to have on, on people. And their response, it was interesting, it was like, ah, oh, you'll be right, we need lots of people that have kids. And I'm like, <laughs> I think you're missing the point. So I, I went into the child abuse and sexual crime group where I was dealing with very, a broad range of crimes against children from emotional abuse, physical abuse, neglect, right through to yep, sexual abuse and, and violence. And um, i got to tell you that that was probably one of the more difficult periods in my career and the reason that is is that I just couldn't see any way I'm going to change this. The wrong people are going to continue to have children and that cycle will perpetuate itself. Mm. A lot of the abuse we saw was from, you know, marriage breakups, women in de facto situations who then may leave the child with their new partner and in lots of cases that partner out of a range of reasons ends up killing the kid
0: out mm. of
2: frustration. So, you know, my hat is off to the general CPIU Child Protection Investigation Units and the Child Trauma Task Force who deal with infant ho- homicide. That's that's another yeah. world in terms of, of just psychologically challenging policing work because you are yeah. not going to ever stop it happening. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, they get justice. That's their mission but you're on a mouse wheel in terms of having any kind of strategic impact.
1: You get that file cleared and through and then you just take the next file it's, off the top of the stack and away you
2: go again. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And it may just be that I'm just not wired that way, but I found that, I found that really hard. So, so around about this same era, era, I was a bit of a geek. I was building computers. Um, I was online gaming. I built my first web page in 1996. I was a musician. I was doing Adobe Photoshop and a whole range of ge- what you would call geek stuff, which set me up really well for an offer from Inspector Anne McDonald to to come into Task Force Argos, which at that stage was only focused on institutionalised or historical sexual abuse of kids, you know, the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church or Boys Town or what, whichever other facility uh, there'd been some systemic sexual abuse. And she she said, look, I'd just like you to have a look at this thing called the internet and see what we can do. So I, I started at Task Force Argos in about 2000, 2001, and set up what was the first law enforcement control operation to investigate crimes on the internet. And I had a couple of other, I had a team of about four. Out of all of Argos, we had a small team of four that was looking at it. And, uh, yeah, fax modems, <laughs> CRT monitors, Desk-bound hard drives and very very limited communication platforms at that stage. It was like email, bulletin boards, news groups. It was the the dawn of of technologically communications.
1: And at that time, John, you probably would it be fair to say you probably initially had no idea what you're actually moving into with this whole investigation into online child exploitation because th- th- this whole Web, the internet was was it in its sort of sort of embryonic stages, if you will, and you've sort of just come in right at the start of it, and um, with probably would it be fair to say no real idea of what you what lay ahead of you.
2: No, I I, I really had no clue. Um, I mean, I, I vividly remember the first time I saw uh, a video that an offender captured the sexual abuse of probably I I, I date the child at about four years of age. Um, it was a point of view camera he was filming. I'll never forget that. Absolutely rocked my world because my daughter was a very similar age. Um, But, you know, that was kind of one of those that just lit the embers of absolute um, outrage, I guess is probably the best word. So I, I chose to then take on this. Uh, challenge that uh, Detective Inspector Anne McDonald had given me and set up the operation. I was very interested in the technology. That was really something I was fascinated by. But what really rocked my socks was, you know, the first time I hopped into an IRC or an Internet Relay Chat Channel, and, and we were going online predominantly at that point as, as kids.
1: So just for clarity, you're you're going on there, you know, undercover is a term that we could use in a different context, but you are presenting as a child on that forum to attract pedophiles and, and those who are going on there for that very reason.
2: Exactly. So you you'd mm. set up a fake persona, you pretend to be 12, 13, 14-year-old child, predominantly female. You'd have multiple, you'd have boy as well and we also had adult male personas that we had developed. Yes. But, you know, you'd get onto IRC and I don't know if you remember the day of pop ups, you know, when your web browser would just okay. You were absolutely smashed by because your persona profile was, you know, Lizzie fourteen Brisbane, something like that. So you're in, in your username, you're telling basically your gender and your age and your location
1: your location. So a lot of those pop-ups that were coming up were uh, pop-ups within that location. Oh
2: no, it was global. IRC was a global platform. You didn't know where the offender was coming from and that was that was a starting point too going, "Hang on, I'm a Queensland police officer. My role is to protect the people of Queensland, but I'm now dealing in a pool that is global." And and we had we did not have connectivity, we didn't have networks. Worst of all, we didn't have legislation. So the legislation at that point in time there was nothing existed in this country or probably globally under the criminal code so if if we found an offender with an image or a video that captured the moment that a child was sexually abused we had to go to the state government censor who would give you a certificate that said that it was illegal under the classification of computer games and images act so so ignite burning point of outrage number 2 that <laughs> which which then caused us to petition the then state government. It was a Labor government at the time and Julie Spence was the police minister. She was fantastic. You know, she sent her cabinet in to see what we were doing and she completely agreed and in 2003 we had criminal legislation for this and for grooming and all of the things that we'd been seeing in those early years. And it didn't exist in Australia at that point, anywhere else except in Queensland.
1: John, I mean, that's, you know, that would come as a huge surprise, I'm sure, to a lot of people listening, and we we, we just sort of have this assumption, don't we, that these laws have always been in place, that we've always been able to sort of arrest people and do this and do that. The the internet, which is, I would say, with regard to sexual crime, certainly with regard to child exploitation, has been responsible for the the, the the biggest increase of any crime in any any time that you want to look at, just because of the nature of it. And there we are with you folks, you know, just dipping your toe into it without any Sort of legal net in behind you, whereby you can charge people and things. So, it's not only not only were you trailblazers with regards to being police sitting at those screens and doing this, but you're also responsible. I would suggest for what we now see as being all these laws that that can in fact offer some protection for for, for
2: crimes of this nature. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Uh, 100%. The the Commonwealth legislation came in in 2005 after we did a national operation called Operation Augson. Uh There was about 700-plus Australians that were identified in that operation that had used their credit cards to purchase access to child abuse websites. You may also remember yes. back in those early 2000 era the number of child abuse pop-ups that you got. It was just insane, you are know, looking back at it now. But, but lots of Australians paid over 700, in fact, and it was more than that, in the first sweep of Operation Orbs and paid for access to those websites. When we closed that operation, you know, we arrested police officers, doctors, lawyers, teachers, every walk of life. That that operation was the wake-up call for Australia. That changed everything at a national level.
1: Yes, and, and, and you look at something like that, John, the anonymity that is provided by somebody, you know, putting up a fake name and going into some of these environments suddenly hits that wall of legislation and now we're moving into a different era of of, of policing. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely, yeah. That that was the dawn of, of you know, res, de, dedicated response capabilities across the country, you know, because prior to that you had child protection investigation units or sockets in Victoria, whatever their name was, that were dealing with general the general crimes or the broader crimes against children. Agencies had to start looking at a specialised capability because it was a different set of skills to investigate this. Not not just proactively, but also reactively. You know, how you execute a search warrant, how you interrogate the offender, how you get the data from their computer, all of that stuff.
1: Trying to get cohesion across, you know, the UK, the US, New Zealand, Australia. Um, I mean, that is that is sort of next level. But In essence, that is what is required to take down some of these massive, massive um, uh, child exploitation rings that you've had involvement in. Over the years that you worked in this environment, there would have been many, many cases, memorable cases, you know, for for good and bad reasons, uh, to be sure. I thought we might just um, just put the spotlight for the benefit of the listeners on some of the higher uh, profile cases. um, By way of perhaps... Uh, taking our listeners into a very high-level, high-profile international investigation, could could you just give us a bit of a an overview of that, John?
2: And the challenge in doing that, I'll, I'll tell you, is that all of the big operations took several years. So this this will be a, and I'm going to miss facts, but I'll do my best. So it, it does speak to the 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 value of those of international cooperation, uh, and you know we've had a brilliant working relationship with our cousins across the ditch in New Zealand. Uh, The Department of Internal Affairs in NZ have always been, you know, like a a really progressive law enforcement agency. And I met a couple of the investigators from there way back in 2000. I'm still friends with them and they're still working. So they did an investigation locally in New Zealand. Uh, It was on a case, a tool called peer-to-peer, which is a file-sharing application. They arrested a New Zealand resident who was in possession of a lot of child exploitation material depicting young boys being sexually abused. When they examined the content of the digital seizure, they saw some images of this little boy that weren't abusive but they were concerning. They're concerning to people like us where we can go, that's just not normal. Yeah, there's a red flag Yeah, the the boy was posed and modelled in different locations and it just triggered them. And they, through further examination of the offender's drive, they actually found a video that showed uh, a vehicle that had a Queensland police, oh, Queensland, sorry, state registration played on it. And in one of those videos, it showed the man that they had just arrested with two other men and this little boy. Now, you glue that together as a detective and you're going to go, we've got some concerns here. We've got now, we've just arrested this guy for possessing images of young boys. He's in Australia with two other men and a young boy. We're gonna send that across the ditch and they did. So we looked at it, we held exactly the same concerns that our New Zealand counterparts did. We went, this is not right. So did all the investigative stuff, identified who they were. We had a Vietnamese ex-citizen, we had a US ex-citizen and we identified that the young boy had been adopted Allegedly, and bought into Australia by these two men. We, you know, they they put themselves out there as being web designers, photographers, but we couldn't find a source of income for them. Very bizarre. Um, so we started doing a, a big investigative trial on them. A customs officer actually intercepted them when they brought this young lad back, a baby at that stage, back into Australia. They were opposite sides of the, the luggage belt. You know, that's so. You know, put your spider senses on. What's with that? Um, the Asian male was evasive. Um, initially, he said he didn't. He was travelling on his own, and all of this is in the report from the customs officer where he went. This just isn't right. But they wrote it off to a cultural issue. You know, the 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 American male partner came across and said, "Look, he, he's shy. He's Asian." You know, he wrote it off that way, and they they didn't take it any further. They got into Australia. They had this board with them. So, so any of these cases that are involving technology, then digital forensics plays a big part. And we obviously were concerned enough to to make sure that we were digging into the digital seizure that the New Zealand authorities had from the offender over there. That resulted in gathering a hell of a lot of information about the communications that that New Zealand offender had had with the two Australians and multiple other global offenders that were communicating on a, on a platform called Skype. The communications in uh, amongst this group were horrendous. They were, they were pretty clearly talking about the sexual abuse of the young boy amongst a network of men. So what we began to do then was look at all of the other individuals, put together an analyst notebook chart of all of the players and all of their connections, all of their emails, everything that they ever said. While we were researching that, we identified that they had abused the little boy in Germany, with an offender in the United States with an offender who was actually a former attorney. Uh, we had sufficient now for a search warrant at our end.
1: So just to, clar- just to clarify here, John, this young boy that we're talking about was the supposed adoptive son of the two gentlemen that you've mentioned, um, one, I think, with an Australian citizenship, one perhaps with an American citizenship. Yep. That's my understanding.
2: That's correct, yeah.
1: And then from a very, very young age... He, he he was groomed by his parents, filmed and what have you, to to sort of normalise that whole process, which then at some point transitions into them travelling the world with him, and this young boy is is offered up for um for sexual abuse with 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 paedophiles around the world.
2: Yeah? That's correct. I think he was on his third or fourth passport by the time that he was intercepted. Um, the we found evidence going back when we dug right back, that they had planned this for several years before they even picked him up. Uh, so their whole plan was to just basically have a, a young boy at their own sexual disposal.
1: And were they getting some sort of financial benefit from this?
2: Well, that's the interesting thing when we when I mentioned that we couldn't find sources of income for these guys. They're travelling the world with no evidence of how we, how they were actually getting paid. So... Obviously, in that case, if you, if you dig back into it, you can see that their trouble was purchased by the individuals so that they were taking the boy to.
1: Mm. Now, John, what was your what was your personal involvement with bringing that investigation to a point where these uh, these two offenders were uh, eventually arrested and charged?
2: Well, your, your role as a detective inspector is is the operations coordinator. So, from the from the mm. outset, the information comes in because the New Zealand authorities, I knew John Peacock and I knew his boss, Steve O'Brien, they reached out. So I have a look at the case coming in and I I can work out whether it's a high priority for us or not. And then you assign your investigative team, your different capacities to it, your intelligence unit, your victim identification team to it. And you put an appoint a lead detective sergeant on the case and the detective sergeant Ian Wells is the lead investigator on that. Uh, So you then work to support their investigation, getting them the resources they need you have regular meetings, you provide guidance, advice, and maintain the international connectivity with the other countries. So ultimately you're you're an operations coordinator.
1: What was the defining moment that, that just sort of pulled everything in together with with regard to this case?
2: Well, uh, we had completely exhausted all of our traditional investigative processes on this particular case. And it sometimes it's just bloody amazing good luck or, you know, the hand of whatever deity it is that you you pray to. Um, But while we were doing this, there was an investigation going on between the United States and Canada into a child sex offender network uh, of predominantly, well, actually all males and boy lovers. And this investigator had arrested an offender in Florida and when he arrested him, he did the digital seizure. He he identified the male was abusing a young boy, and he didn't. He couldn't identify who the child victim was, and the offender wouldn't disclose. The young boy had a very distinctive tattoo on the side of him. Now, he that didn't help him though. It, it, his investigation into that side of it had closed as well. But he happened to be walking down the corridors of. Uh, CIOs, which is the Child Exploitation and Obscenity Section uh, in Washington, which is a prosecutorial body that sits above the FBI and HSI and uh, the Marshals and everybody else. And they were having this conversation about this case that had come from Australia that, that had floundered in Los Angeles and a young boy and he, he just walked past at that exact moment and he heard that and he said, can I see the kid? Just the next morning, mate, I came to work and I had an email from him that was about a page long. I'm going to frame it and actually hang it on my wall because that, <clears throat> if you asked me before about, you know, what what's your happiest moment in your career, that was the happiest moment in my career because that email from him resulted in... and 40-year sentences for those two men for what they'd done to that little kid.
1: You mentioned earlier, I found this really interesting, that once you delve into, as a police investigator around child abuse, into the internet, you go from it being a local to a global environment that you're working in. And so you go then, as in your role, a detective inspector, from working with a local team of investigators or possibly even interstate, which can occur, to now a global investigation involving police from, from New Zealand, from America. from That's a huge thing to oversee, John.
2: Yeah, it is. And look, I'll pay some tribute to former Commissioner Bob Atkinson there because he he maintained from the outset that our he supported what we did, so did um, former Deputy Commissioner Ross Barnett. They recognised very early from the work that we were doing that we were dealing with a borderless crime. We don't know where the offender or the child is until we actually know where the offender and the child is. And once we know that, can we turn our back on the fact that they're overseas and not try to drive an investigation? So... You know, Bob Atkinson supported uh, our, our networking. I attended the, an Interpol meeting in 2005 where I talked about a couple of the cases that we'd done in Australia. My networks grew exponentially from there. I met Paul Griffiths there. Paul Griffiths ultimately joined us as our VID expert in, in Australia. He's a former UK cop. I met Adele Dazeas there. She's part of our VID team now as well. And the VID team, John, what, what is the VID? Uh, so it's victim identification. If if I'm going to look at the way holistically a lot of law enforcement agents investigate these crimes, it's almost a bit of a sausage factory. Investigative lead comes in from overseas, grounds a search warrant, Execute search warrant, find child abuse material, arrest offender, put brief together, next case. You know, the critical thing that's missing there is the kids that exist in the images and videos on that offender's hard drive. Not, not determining whether he's produced that content himself or herself and not then looking to find out where they are. I don't understand why that seems to be rocket science to people. You know, it, you know there are victims that have been horrendously abused and you're looking at it as, you know, and I'm going to use the term because I never do, pornography you know, or kitty porn as some people call it too. It's not that. It's, it's, it's a moment in time where a, where a criminal offence was captured and the only thing you're looking at as, as an investigator is evidence, for your brief of evidence to prove a charge of possession or distribution of child abuse material. I can't understand why. It's taken a long time to get that mindset to change in Australia and even globally. So one of the first things we did at Argos was change our key performance indicators, getting away from arrests and charges to the number of children we found and removed from harm. And that was our pivot point. That was our driving that, that's what drove us right through to when I finished. So, this is a lot of what's driving me right now is correcting the errors of our past about the way we did these jobs, the way we did these investigations.
1: Yeah, John, I can hear that. I can hear the passion in your voice because these are the, this is a unique area of crime, and so much as all crimes have victims, of course they do, but the victims of these crimes are the most vulnerable, the most damaged as a result of the crimes being committed against them. So like you say, your matrix, your, your, your KPIs cannot just be solely linked to how many blokes we've sent away for how long.
2: No, that's absolutely correct. I've always maintained with the team at Argos with new detectives coming in that that image or that video that you have now got in your possession is is the one flare that's been shot up into the air by a kid that could be removed you know, be saved or rescued by you. That's your opportunity. There's your clues. There's your evidence. Run with it. And that's, that's why we formed victim identification capability. Dedicated experts that have got incredible skills, open source intelligence, and analytics, language detection, they put everything they can into finding the children in those pictures. John,
1: the children in the pictures. Uh, I mean, this is this is another huge case that you worked on, uh, which has been the subject of um, of an award winning uh, podcast, which you're also in, involved with. The children in the pictures was um, not not dissimilar to the boy in the henna tattoo, in so much as it involved huge, huge numbers of of um, of individuals going online, and uh, in fact, I think there were forty. 5000 active members on the love zone child abuse network that Task Force Argos under your leadership identified infiltrated and 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 finally shut down. John can you can you give us an overview of your of your personal involvement uh leading Argos into the the children and the pictures. This is this is one of the the biggest ever investigations into online child exploitation.
2: Well this started once again with some of our our friends over in Canada, uh, they they did an investigation into a, a pay-for-view, a commercial pay-for-view child abuse website. It was called Operation Spade. They sent globally investigative leads to countries um, and there was a whole lot of political issues around this that I'm not going to go into today. But ultimately what happened was the Canadians, Paul Krawshak from Toronto Police, rang me and said, Hey, John. Where you at with Operation Spade? I said, I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. Send me the case files. He sent us 37 cases for Queensland. We arrested 34 of 37, which was one-tenth of the world's arrests in that operation. Hmm. On one search warrant uh, where our crew went through the door, the offender bolted out the back. He was hiding in the bush when he was finally arrested and he was a identified as a VIP member on the love zone, on this talk group. That was the beginning of that investigation.
1: Now, John, this is a very crucial part here because by arresting that individual, am I right in saying this gave you, as investigators, a portal by which you could enter using his identity into that child abuse network?
2: Yep, that's 100% Correct. And it goes back to, let just mirror back to the sausage factory mentality about law enforcement, okay? If I'm ever talking about this case, I almost compare it to the matrix taking the red or the blue pill. You take one pill, you prosecute the offender, you move on to your next case. You take the other pill, you go down the rabbit hole, all right? And by, by going down the rabbit hole, which is identity assumption, social engineering, becoming somebody else, you are then you're doing your job as a digital detective because you've you've taken you've you've now elevated your position into a network. You're in a respected position. You're in a trusted position, and we then exploit that.
1: So this is you know most are familiar with the term undercover policing, which is a, a physical environment where uh, you know you drop a undercover police officer into glean information, report back, and arrests are made and organisations are shut down. This is the virtual cousin, if you will, or, or you know, or a partner of undercover policing. Now, that in itself, John, goodness, having one of your officers presenting as a VIP member of a child abuse network that has forty-five thousand members—that um, in itself—that's uh, a massive, massive ask for somebody to take that role up, even though it's online but to take that role up ongoing to gather enough information to shut this process down?
2: Yeah, it's it's variable depending on how active the account you've taken over is. So this individual yes. had reached VIP level based on his contributions and his on, ongoing sustained membership. With him, uh, we were fortunate it wasn't a heavy lift for the covert because he wasn't talking to too many people and he wasn't challenged. If you look at my role in the case, we were able to just do what we do with all of these protracted cases when we were never about dismantling that network and we were never never about breaking them and making hundreds of thousands of charges and all this that wasn't what we were about what that that group had access to what we call first generation content which is it's being produced
1: yes let me just hold you there john for the, the sake of explanation they are producing live images of young children being sexually abused
2: there was a petition on this particular forum where called the Producer's Lounge, where those members had direct access to children. And, and segue quick very quickly. 70 to 80% of contact offenses against children are intrafamilial. Mum, dad, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, cousin, but right? So, so that that generation of people who have contact with children were producing content for this forum. And a lot of it was done on request. Could you make this happen? Could you do this with the child? That sort of thing. So, strategically, from an investigative point of view, uh, our immediately to me, my response was: we need to harvest everything that they're producing, every piece of content that we can intercept, and we need to put our victim identification goggles on here and try to find these kids. So, we were just using it as a source for for child rescue. Uh, the the concept of bringing this network down, because this is the first time we'd actually infiltrated or looked at a TOR site, uh, was a bit of an alien concept in the first, you know, first six to eight months. But the longer you're in these boards, the more you know, the more intelligence you glean, you understand the landscape. You can see that this is a criminal network. It's got a hierarchical structure. You've got admins performing specific roles on the board. So all of that starts becoming Uh, increasingly an interesting challenge, made more so once we determined that the head administrator was an Australian.
1: Yes, this is a gentleman based down in Adelaide.
2: That's correct, yep, Shannon McCool. So that really shifted the focus of our investigation once we had gathered enough information to determine that we had an Australian as a head administrator.
1: So it shifted the focus because it became within the Australian policing jurisdiction that you could, in fact, Take a few steps further and take down the the kingpin, the the
2: the head of this. I, I would say that it was our responsibility to do that. I mean, we would not be relying on a foreign jurisdiction to do this. It was absolutely our responsibility to work with our colleagues in South Australia to make sure that that was that a arrest was affected. Yes.
1: Mm. You bring something like this down, John, and, and as you as you so clearly articulate, the focus for Argos became the well being of the of the little ones, the kids that were being used. As part of this terrible environment, having said that, was was Argos successful in because of that connection in South Australia closing down this um, this this organisation this this website?
2: Was it shut down? Yes, yeah, so one hundred percent. Our head of victim identification, Paul Griffithson, our, our lead covert uh, travelled to South Australia at the time of the, the warrant execution on Shannon McCall's address. Uh, he was successfully arrested. And all of the evidence needed to prosecute him was received. And that's when we took phase two of the operation, which was taking over Shannon McCool's account and becoming the actual head administrator of the board.
1: John, I go back to a comment you made earlier, and I I made a note of it here, where you say that um, so much of of policing and sadly in the environment that you've worked in for so long is... um, you come to the realisation that you're, you're never going to stop this completely, but you just got to save as many as you can through the process amongst other things. You shut down something like this by arresting this this gentleman in South Australia who's, who's the kingpin, but it's got 45,000 members, so they're still out there. Um, is it almost like sort of cutting off the snake and it then grows another head and it pops up somewhere else so we have this ongoing scenario? Well, that's definitely yeah, – that's a
2: good uh, – it's the right analogy because uh, the reality is this particular tour board the love zone had survived previous takedowns okay and so I, I kind of had dual missions here yeah we we've taken out the head admin but we now need to take take this thing down so that it never appears ever again noting that we also knew that those members would migrate to other boards which is fine, but it's our responsibility as the Australians taking out the head admin to make sure this doesn't happen. That required global cooperation uh, with the Dutch authorities because that's where the server was hosted. We had to work with them to get the server taken down. We had to then migrate the server to Australia to host it ourselves. And this is the very tricky end, I guess from a detective inspector's role, if you want to keep circling back onto what I did, this is kind of where you're going, what's the strategic plan here? (laughs) And, and what is publicly defensible in the way that we're gonna do this. So we, we took a whole lot of steps. We had to host it in Australia. We couldn't run an administrator board that was running in another country. So we had to migrate it, mount it, launch it. We had to close membership to make sure that it didn't flourish while the, we were actually holding control. We had to kill the producer's lounge so that no more children were, were abused on demand. We had to socially engineer this network to understand why we were doing these things because you're going to get lots of questions from the board members and the administrative structure. Then we had to have a game plan on what we're going to do with those 45,000 people. And we executed all of those plans, ultimately brought the board down. When it closed, in fact, the membership of the administrative structure was all law enforcement. The accounts globally, as they were taken down, were taken over by authorities in different countries.
1: You've worked in in this environment, child abuse, child exploitation, for over 20 years as an investigator. There's a price to pay. You mentioned earlier in the in the interview, you know, when you first went there, you were confronted by images and part of it was the connection to your daughter who was a similar age of, of a young child that, you know, within the images that you were viewing. When you first go into any environment like this, and let's use the police as an example, you, you go into the child abuse environment. You've never been into it before. You remember those first images. You remember those first days on the job. You remember turning that computer on and being confronted by something that you can never unsee. It's with you for the rest of your life. Many would not be able to do that. Many who attempt to do it would last quite a short period of time. You're looking at stuff, you're dealing with stuff that is horrendous, but you must have to develop a capacity to do that but also function and close the computer down, go home to your family. And what are your thoughts on that, John?
2: It's a really good point. And I think about that quite regularly because it's something I have to talk to, or I had to talk to the new people coming into the unit about. But see if you agree with me on this. The work that we do as police is about trauma. It doesn't matter whether... I've stepped over dead 17-year-olds at the scene of a drug overdose... I have picked up the parts of a body on a railway track where somebody committed suicide and was scattered for hundreds of metres. I've been to fatal traffic accidents where I've seen dead kids in the car, as have all of our police. Every single one of us carries a level of PTSD. Every single one of us does. Yes, you do. You build up layers of resilience. And you've got to find strategies for doing that. My strategy for doing it was largely came from a Swedish police officer who's a a long-term friend of mine who is the father of victim identification from Interpol. It is a crime scene. Compartmentalise that image and that video into a crime scene and look for the clues. Put the digital tape around it, okay? Listen to the voices. Look at the background. Look for product labels. look Look for the things that help you solve the crime. Don't associate yourself with you know, the individuals that are in it, unless there's evidence that comes from those to help you identify them. In many cases, there is not. Many cases we see the child's face, fairly seldom do we ever see the offender's face. But focus on the actual investigative role that you've got here. And the next nugget that I passed on to investigators is, once you've done your job, move on to the next case, never concern yourself again with the victims that you have seen or that particular case, because you will cease to function if you carry baggage. And I, I have I, I know investigators internationally that have formed bonds with the victims that they remove from harm. That's incredibly dangerous. You you know yeah. you just you just yeah. can't do that. So it's about passing on strategies for making sure that you can continue to function, continue to do your role. Uh, and you're right, it's not for everybody. But neither is homicide.
1: And it's also looking after yourself too, isn't it, John? Totally. Making sure that you have those outlets. And because. As, as much as we build up that resilience to whatever it is that we're confronted with, now and again it'll get you.
2: It does. You, look, you've got to, as a cop, you've got to have things, and not just in my, in all fields of law enforcement, you've got to have things that make you see humanity in a positive way. Yeah. Because yeah. like I said, I've, I've reflected on, on that time I had at the watch house as being almost the darkest part of my career because every single shift, was violence and abuse and spitting and fighting and just seeing the worst of our society get coming through that and getting processed and you were either on search or fingerprints or whatever your role was, but it was a battlefield every single shift.
1: John, it's it's, it's a fantastic insight that you give and and you know I think um, it, you know policing or working in in sex crimes and things such that you know. After, after I left the job, John, I, I, I started profiling sex offenders as part of the seminars I was presenting and, and I, I sort of wrote a book and what have you. And it's interesting, I just pick up on so much of what you're saying. I was, I was profiling a serial rapist, f- first ever offender actually to be arrested as a result of criminal profiling in Australia New Zealand. And I was in the midst of this and I was in the ho- office at home. I had everything all out there. I was going through all the cases. And like you say, John, you, 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 I was going in there to pluck as much information out of as I could – so that I could in turn provide that information for girls and women that were attending my seminars. And that and that's what you're doing. My daughter was born in the midst of all that. Now she's twenty five, so that's a little while ago. Went to the hospital, had a day or two there, came back, not consciously thinking anything has changed about me, yeah, walked back into that desk, sat down, and I couldn't I couldn't do it. I, 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 I couldn't read what I had been reading without even giving it a second thought. And I always think of that. It was an interesting thing that I had to recalibrate for myself. I had to take a bit of a step away and I had to recalibrate, okay, how am I going to approach this moving forward now that um, I've become a father in the last 48 hours, which I didn't think would make any difference, but geez, it made a hell of a difference, John.
2: Hey, you are spot on. I remember it was almost like some chemical reaction Happened in me, I changed overnight. The first time I held my daughter, completely changed me as a human being. And look, what I did may not work for everybody, and in some cases it will it will not work for you. Which is where we actively encourage people to keep. You know, if you do not want to work here, the door is open. We'll place you somewhere else like that. You know, because we understand the the, the family nexus in this crime type is probably the most challenging part if you have kids. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we speak about the impact that things have on us personally. And a great mate of mine, um, we went through the job together. He was he was best man at my wedding, actually. He he did a he did a stint in sex crimes, did a rotation through child protection. And and I always remember he said to me, mate, he said, when I started in that environment, he said the hardest thing I found was going to the supermarket and walking around, putting things in the trolley and looking at kids with their with their dads, their mums, what have you. And, and trying to stop myself from assuming that there's a percentage of these people that are abusing their kids. It could be that bloke there, that guy there, that kid. Does that kid look happy? they look unhappy. He said, I, I found myself, I'd be exhausted by the time I got to the checkout because I was sort of psychoanalyzing everybody because of the environment that I was in.
2: You know what my my uppercut moment or actually slap myself was? <laughs> was, was I, I second-guessed leaving my daughter with my father. You know, that was the moment where I went, you need to right. get your shit together, John, or else you are not going to survive. This is your dad. <laughs> you know, that was a, that was kind of the pivotal change for me.
1: John, it's been a stellar career with a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and um, could you nominate your proudest moment? Is there one, John, is there one that just, bang, jumps into your head when I ask the question
2: there? Uh Look, I think probably the, one of the proudest things that I, I'm leaving legacy-wise is the Australian Victim Identification Database. It's an Australian database that's hosted at the Australian Centre to Counter Child Exploitation. That helps our investigators every single day. It's uh, not only in trying to find kids uh, and new material, but it's it's reducing their exposure. You know that 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 database eliminates content that they never have to see again. So. That, that for me is like an Australian legacy kind of item. I'm, I'm very proud of that. I've still got other things that I want to do, but that one will always be, you know, it was a long fight.
1: With all your experience with uh, what you've seen, what you've done, is there any piece of advice that you could give our, our listeners, perhaps a safety tip or something that you know, relates to the area that you worked and that you could offer uh, for themselves or to perhaps, you know, for those that they, they love, their loved ones, protect them from crime or, if you, if you could pluck something out, what, 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 something tangible, what would it be, John?
2: The first one I would say is if a child, if your child ever discloses to you, believe them. That would be number one, okay? Believe them. Don't doubt what they're saying. Believe them and treat treat it like it's the truth. Like truth. That would be number one. In terms of technology-wise, if I had, my daughter's now 28, but if I had a teenager now, 13, 14, 15-year-old, before bed, Surrender all devices. Phones, iPads, every piece of technology that has got internet capability is surrendered at the time you go to bed and you got it back the next morning. Um, a lot of what we're seeing now is what we call self-produced content or victim-produced content. Sextortion is the biggest challenge that we're facing at the moment, particularly it's now been monetized by financial offenders in Nigeria and the Ivory Coast. Uh, they are getting our kids to produce content and then they're using it against them. And it's happening in, in your home.
1: The interesting trend there too, John, and again, this is a discussion that we could have at, a, at another time. The change that I have seen there in the work that I do, I speak to, you know, thirty, forty thousand 40,000 students a year, is that as young men that are now being targeted for that quite frequently, Correct. you know, teenage boys where we have in the past often associated Porno, you know, pornographic images or, or you know, naked images online, where they can be used um, against young women. This this has taken a little bit of a turn where young men, teenage boys, are being encouraged to provide these and then being extorted and, and things such as that.
2: One hundred percent, and the methodology around that is very sinister. I will walk through how that how that happens. So, look, the only the only other final thing I will say is look, you know, if you are going to give your kid technology. Can you at least take time to understand the technology? You know, if you're going to give them Samsung or an iPhone or whatever product it is that you choose that has got the capability to communicate on applications on the internet, understand those applications. Understand that what security has been built into them and maintain a relationship with your kid where they can actually come and tell you if they've got a problem.
1: John, look, I say this with absolute sincerity. I just want to thank you so much for your service, John, for the work that you've done. To be involved in the environment that you've been involved in for so long at such a high level, the difference that you have made for so, so many people, so many kids here and overseas, is um, it's, it's absolutely amazing. You're an absolute champion, John, and I, it's, been, it's been a humbling experience to sit here and have a chat to you, and I want to thank you so much for being part of it.
0: Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Disclosed, the children in the pictures. We'll have more crime stories for you done differently on the Disclosed feed. And if you need support after listening today, you can call Lifeline on 13 14 While you're here, why not check out more episodes of Crime Insiders on your listener app if you're in Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Akim Dev. Thanks for listening.